This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. You know, uh, Luther is repeatedly getting on to Erasmus for, he says, you know, defining terms in ways that won't work or neutering terms. So when, God, when Jesus says, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me, or it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Erasmus is always trying to find ways to make nothing be something less than nothing. Yeah, um, or, or we can sort of reshape no one so that it really gives us room um, to breathe. Nothing here, yeah. It's like when Calvinists work the words all in Scripture. Mm. We're dealing with all. what is, is. is. All, I mean, all, all kinds. All kinds. I think that's true. I think the all kinds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I'm just, I think you're doing exactly what you're saying. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's true, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so all I was saying Plus is... Plus be universalists. I've yeah. a lot of New Testament. <laughs> yeah. when, when he's saying works all in all, I think he just means that's all, everything. Um, absolutely nothing is left outside of the scope of God's causing. And there again, you still have to remember the distinction between causing and compelling. Um, because that always remains key. And, and Luther gets to that a little bit um, on, one seven, on one sixteen or 171, <clears throat> where he's talking about what if a person does not believe? How do we understand a person who hears the gospel and doesn't believe? Um, he says, so it is right to say, if God does not desire our death, it must be laid to the charge of our own will if we perish. This, I repeat, is right if you spoke of God preached. So if we speak about how God revealed works on us and we say um, the law and the gospel obviously didn't do their work on this person, that is because of their will. It is because of them. We would attribute it to that. But then, of course, he goes on to say, for he desires that all men should be saved and that he comes to all by the word of salvation. And the fault is in the will which does not receive him. I skip the Matthew quote. But why the majesty does not remove or change this fault of will in every man, for it is not in the power of man to do it, or why he lays this fault to the charge of the will when man cannot avoid it, it is not lawful to ask. Right. <laughs> well, speculation. Yeah. Reason the devil's work. And that's sort of the thing you're always playing with is what does this mean in relationship to the revealed word, and what does it mean in relationship to the hidden God? where you just kind of have to stop. Um, but you can always work back from saying he, this person didn't believe because you know, we would assume that God's you know, majesty didn't cause his will to change. But that's not an answer we can really go to because no. we can't know it. So This is why Lutherans... I quibble with that a little bit. Yeah, go for it. Because Lutherans are different here because... They only believe in single predestination. Well, no, 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 and that's where I, that's the point of which I quibble. Actually, I'm not Calvinist to ascribe to single predestination. Oh. My quibbling is, I think we know the reasons why people. I think, I think Romans one and two lays the, the 
the feet of blame. I believe the will is bound, but I still believe Romans 1 and 2 lays the feet of blame on the will. I think they actually, the Bible actually answers the question that Luther says it doesn't. Hmm. Which is, man, in their, their foolish hearts were darkened. They did this. They did that. Yeah. And they left God. And, and the culpability is still on the will. Uh, it's just that it wasn't their, God didn't, we don't know why God chose not to regenerate them. But I'm, I'm, I'm a single predestinarian because I think the Bible actually answers the question against the logic of double predestination. But wouldn't you say that all of that is happening in Romans 1 because God has handed them over? That, that refrain again and there's again? A, there's a, that necessity compulsion thing I think is a work. I mean, let's just open up Romans 1 here. Because God is... Paul gives active verbs it to It does seem like Luther is pretty well. close to double predestination a few times. What? Yeah. Um, almost like single predestination verbally, but double predestination in the, in the hidden part of God. I think... Does I that th make sense? Yeah, because, uh, you know... If God does work all things in all and it's His working on us that's responsible for whether our will is written by the mask of God that is the devil or written by God Himself, that is all attributable to God. Um, but the predestination that happens in the work of the electing word is something that's revealed to us. It's something that we can know and it's not, it's not hypothetical. And I think that's probably the key is that Double predestination or damnation to um, you know, be rejected, that is only ever a hypothetical thing. Um, it, can't, it can't be known in, in any way because you can never take recourse to the hidden will of God because it is in its very essence hidden. Logically, um, you might you know, be able to work it out that way, but it, it won't hold up theologically for Luther, I don't think. Uh, just to fill in Romans 1 really briefly, uh, that whole extended section on kind of general revelation. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and the foolish hearts were darkened. Right. So there's a little passive voice there, the foolish hearts were darkened, but they started off with the activity. Yeah, and no, there's three no. sections of God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And then the section ends with, although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove that those who practice them. So that's where I would, that's where I'm like subtly quibbling, quibbling with Luther by saying, and I think, I think, I think Scripture is placing culpability still on the unregenerate will. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Luther's saying that. Yeah, Luther's oh, okay. saying that. Well, I thought he was saying, don't even speculate. We don't know why they're not reprobate. Well, I know. Well, don't even, he's saying, don't speculate about the fact that. God was behind all that, pushing their will that way. With a little heart. Don't speculate uh, why yeah. he didn't unharden their hearts. The yeah. will does what the will wants to do. Right. So there's no there's no place to blame God. Right. Okay. Mm. Then I'm not going. Okay. Yeah. That. Uh, no, but that that's an that's an easy thing to forget because you know, as theologians of glory, we will, we could try to make that move. To say, um, oh, if my will is really bound, then I can blame that on God because he's the one who's working all things in all. 
But Luther doesn't want to let you make that move because of the distinction between necessity and compulsion. Um, I'm trying to remember where this passage is. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking. It's, it's the section where he's talking about... Um, Oh, here it is. It's on, it's on page 99, um, where he, he continually talks about um, what would happen, what would be the conclusion of teaching the bondage of the will. Um, it's in the middle of 99. He says, who you say will try and reform his life if we teach this? I reply, nobody. Nobody can. God has no time for your practitioners of self-reformation, for they are hypocrites. Uh, yeah. The elect who fear God will be reformed by the Holy Spirit. The rest will perish unreformed. Um, in the next paragraph, who will believe you say that God loves them? I reply, nobody, nobody can, but the elect shall believe it. And the rest shall perish without believing it, raging and blaspheming as you describe them. So there will be some who believe it. And then you say that a floodgate of iniquity is opened by our doctrines. So be it. Ungodly men are part of that evil leprosy aforementioned, which we must endure. Nevertheless, these are the very doctrines which throw open to the elect who fear God a gateway to righteousness, an entrance into heaven, and a road to God. Yep. Um, Speaking of, or thinking about Jesus' um, parable of the sower, I read uh, Frederick Dale Brunner's commentary on Matthew, and it's always stuck with me that he, he speculates that Jesus um, Jesus is not just describing four different kinds of soil, but describing a general proportion of who is in our churches. A fourth of the people grow in the gospel, a fourth of the people aren't even Christians, a fourth of the people get choked out by the worries, and a fourth of the people get really excited at first, but then never stay. And I thought, maybe that's true. And so you just indiscriminately scatter the seeds of the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is three-fourths of that indiscriminate sowing will be failure. And Luther's like, yeah, pretty much. I'm all right with that. You know, that's, that's the tone I'm feeling from Luther here. And insofar as you've given them the revealed will of God, that's on their will. Yeah, exactly. Um, they, they are not, um, they do not lose their culpability for that. For that rejection. Um, the thing that, that Luther keeps coming back to um, when he talks about all of this is the work of the preacher. Yeah. Um, if you go to page 228, um, towards the bottom, this is a section on where he's interpreting uh, Malachi sort of how God could hate and love. What page? Uh, 228. It's sort of in the middle of the paragraph at the bottom. He says, I know that men are grafted in by faith and cut off by unbelief, and that they must be exhorted to believe lest they be cut off. But it does not hence follow, nor does this prove that they can believe or disbelieve by the power of free will, which is the point that we are discussing. I think this is the interesting part. We are not arguing as to who are believers and who not, who are Jews and who are Gentiles, or what consequence ensues for believers and for unbelievers. That is the province of the preacher. What do you, what do you think he means by that? I don't know what that? he means. The preacher is the one, this is true, the preacher is the one who affects the elect of God. Hmm. 
that is the mouthpiece of God, as it were, the efficacious word of grace, i.e. election, yeah. is now the preacher, which then divides the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, mm. which divides the church within the church. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. so the preacher, the preacher is the answer in mm -hmm. so many ways for it. Mm. It's the preached word. Yeah. And it's not just the sermon, but some other things too. The preacher is the one who affects the revealed will of God. Yeah, and that, that's the interesting thing to me about this passage because what I've just read so far is saying the question of belief or unbelief is left solely to the preacher. And to that word that's mm -hmm. between the preacher and the hearer, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. when you talk about the preacher, it's really that, that living in between. Yeah. Yeah, one could hear Luther and think he's saying... This is left for the preacher to determine. Right, right. Like right. a pastor looks at his church and, church 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 and, and says, that elect, not elect, elect, you know. Jesus, the kingdom. But I think that Luther's not saying that, although no, he could no, be read no. to be saying that. No, yeah, no. I think that would be a strong He's, he's saying that it is, it is at the place where the preacher is preaching where faith happens. Yeah. That's why the word providence is so important. Providence. He's not saying it's the determination of the preacher. He's saying it's right. the realm of the preacher. Realm. It's, it's the realm of the you know, preacher. It, it, there's Divine a footnote down there that says exordium, which is the, uh, the, the Latin uh, word for preacher there. And I think that word exordium is the one, he's the herald of what is being said. Yeah. the exhorter of what is being said. And so when you look at it, that I think this is a language thing more than is uh, taking preacher. Preaching act. Yeah. yeah, and I think that word exordium is the substance of what is said, yeah. how it's said, yeah, the, the whole context of what is said about by the word of the man of God. And I think that's really what it's talking about. Hmm. And that this is key because... The distinction between God hidden and revealed is the same as the distinction of God pre not preached and preached. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, that's good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't like whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say that again? The distinction between God hidden and revealed is is the same as God not preached and God preached. Unless the preacher feels some undue pressure, right. the, in the same way, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the same way that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. Christ is present in the preached word. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much the preacher as it is Jesus preaching. He is the preacher. Yeah, God's work is, is done through us. Right. Mm -hmm. Because God never works on humans apart from means. And the, the preacher is one of those those means, um, and that's an interesting. Th I don't I don't know how you all do it in your various liturgical settings, but I think that's pretty standard. When you read the gospel, you know what do you say? The gospel according to Saint Mark, whatever, whatever. Glory to you, O Lord. And then at the end, you re you re refrain with praise to you, O Christ, because it's it's confessing that Christ is truly present there. It's not sort of just empty words, but in the reading and the speaking of this word that Christ is present for his people um, to do the work of salvation. That was one of those things when somebody told me that about the way that our liturgy was supposed to work. It was just explosions everywhere. Yeah.
that, as we just said, is the province of the preacher to deal with this question of belief and unbelief. But then he can, keeps going on and he says, what is the work of the theologian? And he says, our question is, and the one he's dealing with here is, by what merit or work do they arrive at the faith by which they are grafted in or the unbelief by which they are cut off? It is this that is the concern of the theologian. Describe this merit to me. Paul teaches that faith and unbelief come to us by no work of our own, but through the love and hatred of God. When faith has come to men, he exhorts them to persevere lest they be cut off. But exhortation establishes only what we ought to do and not what we can do. Hmm. Again, that, that ties back to that word preacher. Uh-huh. Exhortium. Exhortatorum. Hmm. Yeah. And this is another one of those times where I think Luther is pointing to the relationship between second and first order discourse. The theologian has to point out how this faith comes to you. It's not by your own work, but it's by solely the willing of God. And then for the preacher, the only thing that's left to do is hand that over to the people. So it's not that these are two utterly discrete things, but they, these are two things which have to go hand in hand. Um, yeah. Is second and first order discourse, I think it is the same as primary and secondary theology. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, the, it's the abstraction to the proclamation. Yeah. So, remember last time you said, Ryan? I made a comment in a book that I read before this class that you thought, did you put it, Luther, Luther's description of, of his will and the hidden God came very close to double predestination. Is that how you put it? Just a minute ago? Yeah. Yeah, just some stuff that even that we've read today that there's something about that God leaves the will to the reprobate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this was, it's Josh Miller. It's a new book on Oswald Byers' understanding of the hidden God. Have you seen that? Oh, huh. Hmm. Um, he kept talking. He referred to that. He never talked about single predestination. He talked about the inscrutability of God. One aspect of it being double predestination. Luther's understanding of double predestination. I never, I hadn't heard of Luther subscribing or having, he didn't subscribe to anything. It's what yeah. he called it later. Double predestination. I'm just asking you to bridge. Brian brought it up. It was a question I had. Any, any thoughts there? That's- yeah, I was wanting to actually read to you the section from Beyer where he talks about double predestination because it's set for him um, in this discussion of how we try to make God's omnipotence less offensive. And for him, double predestination is one of the ways that we try to control the sort of wildness and all-reaching aspects of God's omnipotence. By be- believing it or disbelieving it? By believing that, we can frame it logically. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, what page are you on? In Bayer, mm-hmm. uh, 209 and 210. Would it be helpful if I just read a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to stand up there by you because I can't hear because of the oh, children. Yeah. So just... Well, 
He says, the third attempt is no longer so prominent in the modern age because nobody likes double predestination except for some of you weird reform people. <laughs> but it belongs systematically at this point. It deals with the way Calvin spoke of double predestination. He does this in systematic fashion in this discussion about the gemina predestinatio, uh, double predestination. God appears here as the one who already determined before time began that a certain person would be saved and that another would be damned. This attempt is based to a certain extent on Romans 9 to 11 and demonstrates significant systematic rigor as well. And yet with Luther, one needs to reflect critically on the form of speech this type of theology takes. Speech that is framed logically as double predestination is risks going beyond the limitations imposed by the human situation. It also does not correspond to what the Christian faith has to say about the agonizing struggle, tentatio, and about God's passionate entry on behalf of sinful humanity. Luther spoke about the Deus absconditus, the hidden God, and about predestination from a completely different perspective than did Calvin, less systematizing and more oriented toward pastoral care. The dark, terrifying, hidden God is not to be treated in any way as parallel to the one who reveals himself. The former is much more the subject matter for the lament, which I can direct only to the God who has been revealed in Christ and who can be addressed. And I'm, I'm just going to keep going because I, I think the next section is helpful too. He says, with respect to predestination, Luther uses a different form of speech than does Calvin. In faith, I confess with thankfulness that I was predestined to salvation and not something like, I am hopefully predestined, and for that reason I believe. It is very important to Luther that one avoid casual, causal thinking and the linear perspective that is suggested thereby. He thinks within the framework of confession and of what is contingent on the basis of the Christ event without trying to reflect back to that time that existed before the rupture in the ages. Page number again for that. 209 to 210. Before the, what, before the, what was the last sentence? Trying, without trying to reflect back to that time that existed before the rupture in the ages. The rupture. What does that mean? Rupture in the ages. Uh, before God has come to you in Christ. Yeah. Okay. You are from the rupture in the ages. Okay. I'm more So do we have any? Sorting it out that you're more Lutheran, I think yes. You, what do you think? We're debating whether Calvin was double. Oh. Neither of us. We're debating whether Calvin. I think a lot of people assume that. Yeah. It's more debated than people outside the traditions will grant often. But he, he never explicitly says it, right? Uh, there's enough places. He doesn't use that word, that's a word that develops later, right? There's, a, there's enough place in the Institutes, particularly Book 3, I'm thinking of, that it's like, yeah, well, he's awfully deterministic. Hmm. He's like, I mean, he's using active verbs. God damns the reprobate. <coughs> and it's sort of, it's, it's very clear in Westminster, isn't it? Well, no, no, I think it's debated in Westminster. Because okay. he uses two different words. God... Uh, elects the elect, but he foreordains the damned, which hmm. seems like Luther. When Luther used the word ordained regarding the reprobate, a kind of a tacit 
whatever. Hmm. But it's debated in Westminster. Yeah. So there is, I guess, plenty of freedom to hold either view, or is this one of those battlefields that... In the EPC, nobody loses any sleep over okay. single or double. I think, I think that would be more debated in other Presbyterian circles, as in, you must believe in double. OPC. But what you, your comment <coughs> earlier was helpful to me when you said it's not, I don't think exactly you remember your phraseology, but you said that it's something, double predestination is something that is arguable or debatable, or you, you use a phrase that uh, was helpful to me because I said, yeah, that's right. It's, it's something that we can talk about, debate about, discuss, hmm. but it's not something that we can see written down anywhere. Oh, yeah, I think I was trying, I'm trying to grasp for language for to describe this, where you could say, if we wanted to speculate into the divine will, we could point to some sort of hypothetical yeah, pre double predestination, but we, but, but the point is that we can't do that. Yeah. Um, because it's so abstracted from anything because you can't apply that knowledge to any single human being that you know. And you certainly can't think about it with regards to yourself. Um, because if you're thinking about um, double predestination with regard to yourself, it's just like being Jacob at the Jabbok River wrestling with that person you don't know. It's going to wrestle all of the um, certainty from you and knowing that God has only revealed himself in one way. I wondered if what Bayer said here is uh, relevant to that sort of pastoral care question where he just says, the dark, terrifying, hidden God is not to be treated in any way as parallel to the one who reveals himself. Um. <clears throat> so the experience of unfectomy occurs only when you are encountered by the inscrutability of God, God hidden. Mm. Unfectomy never comes from the revealed God. Yeah, I wouldn't, I mean... That's just a simple way of me to kind of come over a mountain and come yeah. down. Say that's, that's the again, gospel. Mm. It's always the despair that comes from God's hiddenness yeah. assaulting me. And that's not as Byers so helpfully described for me. It has nothing to do with the law, per se, either. It's mm. not my being killed by the law for I experience the Katsu of the unaffected. An encounter with just, just the raw majesty of the, of the absolute and free God. Yeah. I can't see his face. Thirty-three. You're talking about Byers' third category. John Byers' third category. Gospel and how we, yep. How we how we are encountered in passive tense by God, either by law, by gospel, or uh, the hidden God experience in ten The question that that raises for me, with relation to what we'll talk about tomorrow, though, is that. Um, the spirit that works the law in you is precisely the spirit of God not revealed. Yeah, it's good. Um, so the same spirit, it's the one God. This mm -hmm. is where, you, for me, one of the questions to come out of this class, both this class and the preparation, is what's the answer to the charge? Luther, you're, you're, you, you say you're not a dualist, but you're a dualist. Mm. And, yeah. 
He's going to say, the Bible says it, that it's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So I believe it. But the Bible also describes this God and God this way. And so I believe it. That's what he's going to say. That's yeah. what I would say. He's going to say, and I believe it. But I still want to think that through. Bayer, I feel like, is good on this question in Luther, too. Because, you know, he makes the distinction between the general doctrine of God, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it's the God that's hidden. Um, it's the God that drives me to despair and kills me and all these things. And then there is the doctrine of the Trinity, which is about pure gift. Yep. I was going to say, I don't know the Lutheran distinctions there, but this hidden God talk it feels like rivaling persons in the Godhead. But you mm-hmm. just said that's not how Luther conceives of it. No, because for him, the doctrine of the Trinity points to how God, he gives himself to you in every way. Yeah. The God, hidden God is not God the Father. Oh, no, 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 yeah. The invisible Because even the, even the Holy Spirit works on you in a hidden way. Um, gotcha. Yeah. But the thing that he's saying is for you to say that the God who is hidden, who drives you to despair, um, who kills you with the law, and the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, if you want to say that those two are the same, he says you're uttering the paradox of a mystery. (laughs) Um, You're pointing to a unity in our experience of God that we can't have in this side of the eschaton. Okay. And I, I, I... That's a very interesting concept. Yeah. How would you distinguish, I know we're kind of getting at it, but like, you know, Marcion to God theory with what Luther's saying, you know, because I think for a lot of people, that's what they would hear. Yeah, because, yeah, because it is a sort of, yeah, and it's a strong statement that we can't, we can't know that God is always the same. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think the difference between Marcion, which, I think there's a, a huge, huge difference. Um, Good. There, it's not it's not drawn down lines of Old Testament, New Testament, or anything right, right, like right. that, yeah. or Creator God, Redeeming God. But it's a Marcion duel. <clears throat> um, I mean, it's a similar. Structure. Well, is onto something? Is it? You know, when you study patristics, it's you know yeah. he's like evil. You know, everybody hated him, but was he onto something? Perhaps that Luther touches a little bit. I don't, I don't think Marcin was on to anything because I think that the thing for Luther... I'm just throwing that Yeah, yeah, it's a good yeah, question because... Yeah, you, you, but I can understand why you would hear that or think it. Um, the, the thing for Marcin is that these are two different beings. For Luther, it is that in our experience of God in the world, in the flesh, as bound wills... Um, who have not been resurrected to the eternal life to live with God, we can only experience God in these two ways. Um, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, it, this whole concept has been very interesting because in Reformed theology, we talk about decretive and hidden will, not revealed and hidden God. Right. It's They're trying to do the same things, but I wonder what makes them different, and that's, that's interesting. Hmm. Right? Yeah, yep. That's always been more reassuring to me. It's like, man, I don't know what God's thinking. I don't know what he's doing. But Lutherans are talking about the way we actually experience the real God. Not, not, not I don't know the way he's yep. 
do I don't know what he's doing or thinking right now. Mm-hmm. It's more like I don't know who I don't is. know who he is. Yeah, that's, right now. That's too. That's kind of funky. Yep. The dark hair. Yeah. The man of It sounds like. I mean, this all sounds very similar to the law as well. You know, <clears throat> it's like the law is holy, righteous, and good. But since we are not, our engagement with it is terrible. Yeah. You know, accusatory. And so that's why I think that as a com- you know, when you have this conversation with people who aren't really tracking on the law of gospel as well, that they come across, you come across as like, what are you trying to say? God is evil, you know, because he's the sure. one who says, is, is he out to get me? He's accusing me, you know, he's, he's his law, you know? Yeah. yeah. But it's really, I think the distinction lies in the fact, no, the law is really great, but our every, inter- as sinners, <laughs> our interaction with it is always like terrifying. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think just to keep pressing on from that point where Luther is not Marcionite. Um, <laughs> it's like, I really, Luther's not Marcionite. Full stop. Continue. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's that we can't, it, we cannot successfully posit a unity in our experience of God because we experience the hidden God who just kills us and drives us to despair and works sin, death, and the devil in and around us. Uh, and then the other God revealed to us in the preached word, we're given all good gifts and everything is taken care of and everything that was demanded is given. But I think the distinction there is there is a unity that will only be known eschatologically. Just as, and I, this is maybe a more disputed point, when we talk about the Decalogue and the antinomian dis- disputations, um, the law is never to be done away with because there is an ultimate unity probably, I would say, between the law and the gospel that will be known not now, but later. <laughs> um, because the, the law is nothing other than God's will for your life. Um, and in, in the afterlife or the hereafter, I think it would be a safe thing to, to say from the antinomian disputations that we will be able to reconcile those two things together. That, that's me just throwing that out there, maybe to think about for tomorrow. That's not an ironclad thesis. The stuff about God is. <laughs> we will know God as one God um, in the hereafter. Um, but the distinction between law and gospel is something maybe to keep in your mind as we move towards it tomorrow. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.